Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Rethink podcast. My name is Owen Gaffney and with me today is a truly remarkable scientist. He is Carl Fulke, the Stockholm Resilience Centre's co-founder and chair of the board. Carl's own path to resilience thinking is unique. Instead of stepping into his family's successful building company, he chose a career in academia. After earning a degree in business and economics, he became fascinated by the connections between society and nature. Through his PhD studies and beyond, Carl was inspired by systems ecologists such as Anne-Marie Janssen, Buzz Holling and the Odom brothers, but also economists like Kenneth Balding and Herman Daly. These were the pioneering thinkers about how an expanding global economy can operate within a finite biosphere. Carl, or Calais as he's known to friends and colleagues, has built on this work to become one of the most cited scientists, not just in ecological economics, but in academia. He has 175,000 citations, according to Google Scholar. In addition to his work at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, Kalle is also the director of the Bayer Institute for Ecological Economics at the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. He is a member of the US National Academy of Sciences and the Royal Swedish Academy. He has received numerous awards and recognitions over the years. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Uwen. Really nice to be with you. So much of your work and many of your talks start with the biosphere. What is the biosphere? It's a beautiful place. Uh, it's, it's just a thin layer of about 20 kilometers around our planet. And that's where life exists. Uh, the only life that we knew of in the, in the way we knew it, in this immense universe, that's fantastic. Uh, a universe that is so big that you can't grasp it mentally, with several millions and billions of galaxies. We have one galaxy, the Milky Way, and with several hundred billions of stars, with the sun as one star, and the sun having couple of round planets circulating it and uh, Earth is one and Earth happens to have this biosphere. It's not by chance, it's, it's, it has been an emergence of life uh, in a beautiful way as a complex adaptive system and since it's about life it's also about our life and we are part of it, dependent on it and living in it and embedded in it, and it is indeed our home. It's nothing else than our only home. And so, and within this biosphere, we have a global economy that has been expanding over the last few uh, few centuries, particularly the last few decades. How do you think about the economy and the biosphere? Yeah, the, to me, the economy. Uh, and society and all of us are embedded in the biosphere, we're part of it, we're living in it. It's not something that is external to society or a sector that we deal with when we want to. Uh, I think sometimes the climate issue is looked upon as a sort of separate issue that that if we fix that we can go on living as before, but we sort of have lost the the, the, uh, obvious 
this insight that we were part of the planet and living on it and dependent on it. But I think we are rapidly gaining that perspective again. Uh, and of course, as you said, uh, when there, we're now in the Anthropocene uh, era or epoch where, where we as humans have amazingly expanded into global force. If you look at my lifetime, I was born in the mid-50s, uh, 1950s. The great acceleration of us has happened since then into, into a lot of beautiful things, uh, much more health, uh, well-being and material living standards for most people on Earth, although there are several people still uh, without it. Uh, and that's an amazing world with, with a globalized society. Uh, but it also means that that huge expansion has now started to uh, sort of carve out the resilience of the planet that we are dependent on. Uh, it's, it's challenging, starting to challenge our own future. So, so the bottom line here is actually that you can't think about people as one thing and nature as another. Or, of course, we are completely interwoven, intertwined in a web of very complex relations from the local up to the global to the planet as a whole. So, and you mentioned resilience here, and obviously that's a, a core part of the, the work at the centre. Um, can you define what what you mean by by resilience in this this big global uh, biosphere context? Uh, I could start saying that resilience is not what many people think of it as just bouncing back or or uh, going back to what we were before, some type of recovery. That's not how we use it. We look at it as a capacity, a, a capacity to live with changing circumstances, whether they are predictable or unknown, or truly unknown unknowns, uh, and, and, and fast or slow. And we're especially interested in looking at resilience as the capacity to live with both abrupt change, but also slow changing circumstances. Uh, basically to, to live and develop with change, having that capacity. So, you know, what what drives you as a researcher? As you, as you said, you know, you um, you're born in the 50s, then at the start of this great acceleration, and, you know, your career has gone through, um, you know, seen huge changes, physical, biophysical changes to the planet. Um, so how... What drives you as a researcher and how has your thinking evolved over the last few few decades? Um, just to, you know, talk us through uh, your, your eureka moments. Yeah, I, I started back in the early 80s with, uh, with my PhD, 84 I think it was, and, and, and um, uh, I was... Uh, I started business and economics and administration first, but I was really interested in how we work, how the planet works, actually. And I think I'm driven by truly understanding what's going on in the world and felt that that combination between the planet we're living on and the society we are developing was poorly investigated and poorly understood at those times, actually. So I was lucky to get in contact with a woman called Anne-Marie Johnson, who was leading a group that were trying to connect ecology and economics. And um, and I did my master's with her, actually. And I think it probably was the first ever quantification of what is now called ecosystem services or nature's contribution. Uh, 
to society or to people uh, of, of a wetland in in one island in the Baltic Sea called Gotland, where we try to quantify the values and uh, the benefits and of ecosystem services for people uh, on, that, on that island. And that was a very new thing at that, those days. And uh, I remember we had people from Stockholm School of Economics coming to the master uh, presentation and people from biology department be very, very upset that we may try to make these links and so on and so forth. So, so you're, you're really right, Owen, at that time, there was a big gap between people who were doing natural sciences and people who were living in the world of economics. Actually, when we started ecological economics in in the mid late 80s, uh, as an area, we had it as a slogan that that uh, ecologists were pretending as there are no people around, and economists are pretending as there is no no nature around. Actually, and and to some extent that is still true, but I think it has changed radically since then. And and I was lucky to after my thesis, which focused on on life support, what Eugene Odom had called life support ecosystems for humans, actually. Uh, so you could say that I started with really trying to understand, uh, to look at ecosystems as a capital that generates uh, goods and services. And, and the reason for using goods and services, uh, that was Paul, Paul Ehrlich's and John Holdren's invention, was to, to highlight that nature is not just a store of resources that you pick and exploit, but actually provides a lot of services from climate regulation to pollination of crops to water purification and lots and lots of other things. Uh, and and um, he, he used the term ecosystem services to, uh, since the, we measured economic progress in, in economic goods and services. So that's the origin of the, of the, of the concept, you could say. So from, from going from Understanding ecosystems, we got more into the how do you manage them. But then, uh, since the realization happened that people are a part of ecosystems, we really looked at how do we govern people as part of ecosystems, and not just people to people, but people with nature, actually. And that that led to the whole idea of social ecological systems, which uh, we developed after I've started at the Bayer Institute. And the Bayer Institute, I think, was completely instrumental for many of those topics, and I think for a lot of what's going on in the world today, because when we started in the early 90s, it was one of the few spaces or platforms that brought together leading social scientists, we leading natural scientists, and especially ecologists, actually. So, so that space was just tremendously important for the emergence of many of the topics that actually not only we, but a lot of people in the world are working on on today. So, so, so that a little bit is a little bit of my background going from understanding ecosystem dynamics to to actually actually doing footprint analysis also. I think we were one of the earliest in the mid-80s, but we were not smart enough to call it ecological footprints, we call it appropriated ecosystem areas. Uh, basically to try to find out how large space that is required to produce a good or a service from nature. And we applied that to, started to apply to aquaculture and to wetlands and many other other ecosystems to show that humans are heavily dependent on, on the work of nature. And we did it in 97, I think we did it for cities where we looked at all the big cities in the world, how much 
they need from uh, support they need from ecosystems just through resources and services and and some of the waste assimilation capacities so so a lot of those concepts and ideas uh, i was lucky to be part of groups that invented those like investing in natural capital or or ecosystem services footprints and all this stuff and, and you also go into um, other areas too, you know, um, it, macroeconomics and uh, impact on the biosphere and behavioral psychology. Um, uh, you had a, a paper with colleagues in science uh, a couple of years ago, uh, looking at, you know, at that kind of micro level, um, you know, uh, consumer behavior and, um, and nudging and uh, uh, these kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, policy interventions that can, uh, can change behavior at scale as well. So um, it's almost like uh, you're, you're totally unbounded in, um, in what, you, what you're interested in and want to look at. Yeah, you're right, because we're looking at the challenges and problems and try to understand what's going on. And that means that you're not constrained by a certain discipline or by a certain theory or method. You try to bring together people who can really collaborate and are excited about figuring out new things that have not been seen before. And the biggest success is when you, when you do that. And when they are seen, they become so obvious that everyone thinks they have been seen all the time. That, that's to me is a, is a big success. I, I was lucky, of course, that we also started to work with a lot of people from uh, dealing with institutions uh, back in the mid uh, mid nineties. Uh, because uh, at the same time as ecological economics developed, there was also another society, or International Association for the Study of Common Property Resources, or uh, Common Pool Resources, as it, as it is called today. So that's how I got to know. Fikir Berkis and Ellen Rostrom and many of the others, and, and that connects to what you just talked about, uh, Owen, with, with, with norms, the, rule, rules of, the norms and rules of the game, the, the institutions. And Early on I worked a lot on traditional and indigenous societies to, uh, to try to figure out how they were governing and managing uh, ecosystem services uh, with an with entry point that if they have survived for thousands of years without fossil fuel technologies or capital markets, what did they do in relation to the ecosystem that made this survival possible? And, that, and, and the first work, work was published in a book in 98 called Linking Social and Ecological Systems, where we, where we used a lot of case studies from all over the world to draw out basic understanding and basic principles of this type of management and governance practices. So, so that that was very exciting, and I think, uh, of course, a lot of that work on, on norms, both formal norms and informal norms. I think for informal norms, I I did work with colleagues on on uh, sacred groves, for example, or or uh, a lot of oral-based traditions that created uh, links between people uh, of how how you behave. And uh, so that's a that's a long tradition we have worked with for a long time, both norms and how they are also developed into formal rules in society. And then in 2007, you founded the Stockholm Resilience Centre uh, with um, your friend and colleague, uh, Johan Rockström. Can you talk us through the origin story of the centre? Yeah, that's a... That's a great thing. Yuan, uh, as you may know, he did his PhD in my research group at the uh, small research group we had at Systems Ecology called Natural Resource Management. 
and uh, he was away uh, working with uh, water harvesting in in uh, Africa. And uh, Marlin Falkenmark is supervisor, and I really want to get him back. So we were successful in getting him back to become director of the Stockholm Environment Institute. And uh, when he started there, we we there was a call from one of the Swedish research councils on uh, on center of excellence and and. Uh, Johan and I and uh, Kaljan Mähler, the director of the Bayer Institute at that time, put together a, 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 an application for Center of Excellence on, on resilience and complex adaptive systems, uh, which, we, which we actually got. Uh, and it was uh, very exciting because it was the only one that was more interdisciplinary. Uh, out of, I think it was two, three hundred applicants, they selected five, and we were one of those. And that became the seed also for the Mistra uh, center. So when the Mistra call came out, the big call for this big, big new center, actually trying to connect natural and social sciences on stewardship of uh, ecosystem services, they, they were very inspired by the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment finding at that time when the call came out. Uh, and, that, and that call went to all Swedish uh, universities and, and it was only the rectors or vice chancellors that could apply. So, so, so we put together an application, and we we had already sort of started because of that center excellence. We had the framework and the pieces, and we also had fairly long, yet yeah, almost uh, fifteen to twenty years uh, of experience on those topics, uh, having worked with them, sort of at the margin uh, or at the fringe for quite a long time, then suddenly they became highlighted in a, into a big big effort. And, and we were lucky to be the one who, who won that competition. And, and out of that, the center started. And we set up the center in a quite special way, I think. We set it up as, as a complex adaptive system, actually, where, uh, where, where you can start things and close them down, where you work with teams and clusters that uh, are loosely coupled and, and can uh, can emerge or uh, if they don't emerge they, they are closed down and, and and that's the way it's been going and, and what's been beautiful I think with the center is that that it has fostered a lot of uh, collaboration and a lot of collective action uh, simply because each individual working there realizes that if I if I share my ideas and if I collaborate, that will be very beneficial to me myself as well. So, so, so we put the whole uh, incentive for people uh, to be part of the of the community as a, as a very strong one. And of course, if you look at human evolution, that's how we have evolved. I think being able to collaborate as a species and, and organize ourselves uh, in networks and and the institutions uh, that allow us to uh, to function and, and, and continue to develop. And the name of the centre, um, was it, uh, did it come naturally? It was obvious it was going to be the Stockholm Resilience Centre, or was this um, something you were playing around with many, many different uh, titles that uh, could work? Yeah, we had, there were some discussions about it, actually, because at that time, a lot of people were not familiar with really what resilience was all about. And, uh, but we had a quite long legacy on that. Uh, first, of course, through the close collaboration with Buzz Holling, who was a dear friend and, and a big mentor to me personally, actually. And, 
and he he had started with that from the ecological end already in the 70s uh, but but the connection to people had not really taken off until we we started the Bayer Institute where resilience popped up as a key thing in all our research programs the first program was on the ecology and economics of biodiversity loss uh, I think sort of a forerunner to the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment and also by, by com combining those things. And, and the second one was on complex systems, and the third one was on property rights and natural resource systems. And resilience come up, come back again and again. And then we decided to, to try to start a research program on resilience through the Bayer and Hollings Group in Florida. And we got uh, quite big support from MacArthur Foundation to do that. Uh, and out of that, a very productive journey started. And and later it became the Resilience Alliance that still exists, which was at that time instrumental in, in pushing the understanding of resilience uh, thinking, actually. Uh, and uh, so, so we had that legacy, but we also had the legacy of, of, uh, of really looking at people and nature as interlinked. Uh, so there were some people who really wanted to call it more these the Stockholm Institute for Social Ecological Systems, or, so, or something like that, yeah. because because, uh, because a lot of people had worked on, especially on the social side of, of those systems, but but sort of neglecting the ecological side, I would say, and and and, and a lot of ecologists had worked on the ecological side and just looking at the social as a as a in driver into it or an impact on it. Uh, but we decided still to, to do stock to, do, to have Stockholm Resilience Center in the name because we felt that that was a really interesting lens to look at the world. And, and of course, I, I talked a little bit about resilience before, but I think the lens is really about using an approach that is more of a complex systems thinking approach, where you have where it's very hard to to study the world uh, as incremental in a linear way. And, and a predictable way, but, but instead you have to realize that there's a lot of uncertainties. It's a dynamics that is non-linear. There are thresholds and tipping points in the system and so on and so forth. And it's, it's a very much of a much better description of how the world actually works, I think, than, than the more linear one that a lot of science was based upon. So the Stockholm Resilience Center is now 15 years old. What, what do you think of its place in the world? Where is its place in the world? And how, how, how do you feel it has evolved? Yeah, personally, I think it's a fantastic place. Uh, uh, and uh, what is surprising to me is how all our colleagues and, and uh, the networks that we work with can combine, combine doing really good science all the way from basic curiosity-driven science to uh, transdisciplinary collaborative science uh, and publish it in amazing places and get a big recognition of that part. And simultaneously uh, impact and influence a lot of actors and processes from big UN processes to uh, what's going on in municipalities and, uh, and in collaboration with indigenous societies and a lot of groups on the ground worldwide. So I find it I find it uh, extremely rewarding, uh, having been one of the 
co-founders and with Johan Rockström and some other colleagues who were part of the start in 2007 uh, found it extremely rewarding to to see how this space has really emerged into uh, an important player internationally uh, and perhaps even uh, to put it uh, in blunt words a leader in in sustainability science uh, shaping a lot of new research directions and shaping new directions for for the role of science in society uh, i can i can highly recommend a presentation by ursula von der leyen the the president of the european union uh, that she gave at the nobel prize summit where she really talks about uh, the role of science as helping practice and policy and business to make sense of the complex world we're living in. And she talked, she talked about it in the context of curiosity-driven science with new innovation and no solutions. And also about what she explicitly stated as transdisciplinary science, which is, I think, an area that we are uh, sort of a leader in at the Stockholm Resilience Center, where we actively collaborate as as an independent body or independent broker with big actors, uh, important actors and actors all, all over the place in collaboration to, to help transition and transform uh, the way we do business and the, the way we do things into more sustainable futures. So I think we are we are not only the latter, not only doing the latter. We are doing the whole spectrum there at the center. And I find that very impressive. So you mentioned uh, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, um, and of course, then following on from that, we've had um, you know major reports from IPBES, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, and then earlier this year. We had the Descripta review on on biodiversity and economics um, for the for the British government, um, and this is you know commissioned like the Stern review um, you know a decade or so ago on climate and economics. Um, this is a, a major report for governments on um, biodiversity and economics. And what blew me away when I read the uh, intro to it was it specifically mentions the the influence of the Bayer Institute in foundational thinking on ecological economics um, over, over the decades, a huge influence, and, and you personally um, uh, influencing the thinking behind there. And then as you go into the report, you know, the first thing you, you're hit with is this, it's, it's the complex systems, it's the thresholds, the non-linearities, the, um, the, the intertwined social ecological system. Um, can, so just, uh, and you were a reviewer on, on, on the report, um, so I think it's a monumental work. What, what do you think the influence of this this report could could be? Well, I think uh, I really think it's a really nice <clears throat> sort of insightful report that uses economic term terminology to describe uh, what's going on and understand what's going on and also what to do about it, uh, which really hasn't happened before. It, it, there have been a few attempts. So the TEEB, for example, the Economics of Ecosystem and Biodiversity that the European Union started earlier, and, and similar, a lot of attempts, of course, to value 
to value the rule of the biosphere in human affairs. But but what is really nice here, I think, is 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 the deep insight on the Anthropocene, uh, that and that we are completely intertwined and that we are embedded in the biosphere. That that is such a strong entry point that Porthos Gupta really now clarifies from the economic perspectives, uh, and. And I think it has will have a big influence because it moves from more of a, of a standard sort of cost-benefit analysis with discounting into much more deeper, deeper understanding of the challenges and the opportunities and, and how you can think about it from an economic perspective. And I, and I like his three recommendations there. I think the first one is really about investing in natural capital in the, in the natural assets actually he talked about uh, nature and the biosphere as a super important asset for our well-being and welfare and uh, and he argues that uh, you know the, there's been a classical discussion of trying to internalize externalities since decades basically how you price nature and these type of things but what he talks about is is just if we do things differently like for example create supply chains that are transparent and where you have traceability that in itself is is a way to correct market imperfections in the economy uh, so, so just by by reg regulations and norm shifts you will implicitly start to account for the biosphere uh, if you really become transparent and and uh, uh, open up the way these things are, are, are produced uh, the second point is, of course, how we how we account for our impact and imprint on, on nature, and that's that's really to, how how we to modify <coughs> the progress accounts of society in relation to the planet. Pantheras Gupta and Kalyan uh, Mela others de developed something called inclusive wealth, but there are lots of other measures as we as we know with Human Development Index, and also a recent one developed by the Stanford Group with Gretchen Daly and, and also Steve Polanski on what they call gross ecosystem product that is now supported by the UN and it started to be implemented in several countries, for example, in China. And the third, the third point he really emphasizes there is, is, is major transformations, basically, in several of our activities. And he highlights especially the financial sector, that investments and the venture capital and other players in that field really start to see the extremely important significance of nature as a, as a super important asset for our own future and well-being. And, and, and also the educational system, where not, and not just education for kids or school children, but also in companies and in governmental administrations to, to increase the level of basic knowledge about the situation and, and our dependence on, on a healthy planet. So in my mind, I think it's a, it's a path-breaking report in that it, it really takes this shift from the planet as an external factor to the economy into society and the economy completely embedded in the planet and 100% dependent on its functioning. Yeah, um, so absolutely. So, you know, uh, you know, biosphere stewardship, planetary stewardship, 
uh, and the long-term progress of humanity depends on ecological economics becoming mainstream. So, I mean, th those recommendations um, in the descriptor review are really important. Um, and it and it sounds like we are making some progress with um, with businesses, um, with some in the finance community, as you say, with China, with some um, uh, with some countries. Uh, but I, but how long will it be before this becomes mainstream? I mean, you know, in economic journals, the mainstream economic journals, um, they've virtually never published a paper on biodiversity and hardly any on on on, on climate. Um, so how do we how do we bridge that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a big challenge actually, and and change is happening. And uh, climate economics, for example, was a field that didn't exist fifteen years ago, uh, and has now been growing. But so I think that many of the issues are raised within economics, but I still think that the profound uh, sort of uh, new narrative of being embedded in the planet that the Skupta report presents is not uh, in any way mainstream yet. But I think I think it's getting there and it has loosened up quite uh, fast now because of the real world changes, I think, actually. So, so I, ho I really hope for... for um, Economics and other, and, and not only economics, other social sciences also, to to look at this uh, new narrative. Because because, uh, because the tendency is still, and I would also say from a natural sciences perspective, the tendency is still that that uh, humans are sort of an external driver and not not looked upon as an intertwined actor in the system. Uh, so it's a big paradigm shift we're in right now, and some in some areas it's going fast. Uh, inequality, for example, I think the first publication really came out in 1990 that really made those points. Uh, and and uh, but now, as we all know, it's all over the place. There are a lot of new journals, and also in in ma among major places like Nature and Science, or have a lot of new journals and a lot of new. Uh, space for really addressing what's going on in this deep sense and, and uh, we're still waiting for that to happen uh, among several sub-disciplines of economics actually that do not see this link uh, at all yet actually. So this year you convened the first Nobel Prize Summit um, with the National Academy of Sciences in the United States, um, with the Nobel Foundation, with Potsdam Institute uh, and uh, the Resilience Center. Uh, and now we have a, a statement from that summit signed by an unprecedented 126 um, Nobel laureates. Um, what, what was the significance of the, the summit and, and this statement? Yeah, I think the significance of the summit, I think, is that uh, these this view now that we was talked about yeah, from embedded in the biosphere and being part of the planet is now common sense. It's, it's, it's a consensus that this is the way it is and, and that climate is real, that biodiversity loss is important for our own future and, and that we have to become stewards of, of the planet. Uh, uh, we don't, we're not arguing about it anymore, so to speak. It's, it's, Strong players like U.S. Academy of Sciences and the Nobel Foundation are now 
uh, standing behind behind that uh, that view is and it's much more than a view that reality i would i would argue it's not the perception or a view it's a reality of what's going on and 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 uh, the statement that was generated i think is a really interesting statement because it puts together several dimensions of society like technological change and uh, issues of justice and fairness and inclusiveness uh, together with the planet and the biosphere that we're living in uh, and, and, and uh, sort of try to push big gov uh, governance actors to be, be faster and do something more rapidly about those issues than what we have seen so far. And uh, fantastically, it has been signed by 126 Nobel laureates, uh, both from literature also and from the Peace Prize and from all the other prizes as well. So, so it's, a, it's, it's a quite a major statement and major breakthrough, I would say, of consensus of what, what it's all about. And now the focus is on rapid action to do something about it. And as, as you all know, uh, when it comes to the greenhouse gases, uh, it's uh, urgent because it seems like uh, we already have left the very favorable policy in era of the last 11,000 years, uh, which, uh, which didn't fluctuate more than one degree back and forth from pre-industrial levels. Uh, and now we're up in 1.2 degrees warming. And, and we also uh, have indications that we've never been beyond two degrees warming as a species because, because the Earth has not been warmer than two degrees in the last three million years. And we've been around effectively for 250,000 years. So if we go beyond two degrees, it means that we really will be in something very, very different. And to what extent we can handle that is completely uncertain. And, and what I think is very encouraging is actually the fast movement that is now happening on, on greenhouse gases. There is Greenhouse gases is not something you're discussing anymore. It's really action being taken now. All big players are having goals for net zero emissions. Many, many companies are acting very fast and uh, facing out into renewables uh, in, the, in the whole supply chains. Uh, and many, many are actually now also redirecting in, into figuring out how they can be a source in revitalizing the resilience of the biosphere uh, through nature-based solutions, through new forms of, of investments in forests and, and uh, agriculture systems and wetlands and many other, other of these ecosystems. And also how to reorganize how we behave in relation to those systems. Uh, and I think uh, that's very exciting, actually. So my final question, Kale, um, are you optimistic about our future? Are you optimistic we will be able to, uh, societies will be able to rearrange ourselves in, in time before we cross some major irreversible thresholds? As you know, Owen, I'm always an optimistic guy, but in, in some domains, I'm less optimistic than I was before, given the urgency of the of the challenge. Uh, 
but on the other hand, I'm positively surprised by the fast wakening up that has just happened in, I would say, the last five years. Uh, when I started out these things in the 80s, you know, the people were either looking into conservation of species, trying to set aside things without people, or, or looking at pollution or, or resources. It was completely divided in separate camps, but I think the realization now is that people understand that we are living on a planet and we need it, need it to function in a good way for us to be here. That's, that's a big shift into something such, such an obvious insight, of course, but, uh, but it's a big shift that's happening very, very fast now. And that's, uh, that's the hopeful thing. And, and I see a lot of big actors uh, being serious about it. A lot of actors changing their purposes and, and meanings uh, into this direction. And uh, the question is whether we will be able to do it fast enough or whether we will be able to collab collaborate uh, in, in a good and in a good way with dignity and respect uh, to make this big transition happen. Uh, and why, why I am Am I positive? Yes, I think we are moving out of the industrial era now into a new space. I guess similar things have happened before in human history when we have moved into new, completely new situation. I think the Enlightenment era was one of those when we moved from looking at the Earth as flat to, to understand that it's round and that the Earth is not the center of the universe, but it's circulating around the sun. All of these big shifts that have happened uh, is, is creating new directions, new pathways, new ways forward. Um, and, and I am convinced that we are right now in, in such a big space at the big scale. Uh, and when those space opens up, it's always turbulent. You will get versions that are extreme uh, on different scales, whether it's right or left, whether it's justice or uh, individualism, all these things. Uh, and, and it's hard to know which pathways that will be be chosen. And of course, in such a situation, things can go really, really bad. We can end up going back to situations that are very unpleasant to be in as a human species, not just by physically, but also in human relations. But we also have a great opportunity to mobilize uh, our societies and our enormous capacities of communicating uh, and collaborating uh, to to turn the ship around into a sustainable future. And sustainable future, uh, I also include uh, justice. And I would argue that the, the ultimate justice uh, for, for humans on Earth, given the big discussions that are going on on inequality today, the ultimate justice is really to leave a livable planet uh, for the next uh, generations to come, actually. Well, on that positive note, uh, thank you so much, uh, Calais, for, for being with us today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much, Owen. Very nice to hear your voice as well.
You've been listening to Rethink Talks, a podcast produced by Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth, and don't forget to subscribe.